0: start at the very beginning and to lay a foundation for one of the major themes we will be pursuing in the coming weeks. The growing requirement for developing a balanced set of skills that include both technical capacities, how we use a machine or a computer, and so-called human capacities like communication, teamwork, and empathy. We spend a lot of time working on the first type of skill, the technical, and kind of take for granted the other more humane aspects of work. The successful exercise of either type of skill, technical or human, requires us to perceive, understand, move, communicate, and relate to other people. The primary instrument for all of those tasks is our brain, that magnificent and complex organ that makes up so much of who we are and guides us in what we do. Understanding how our brains are designed and operate then is critically important to understanding vocation, career, and work. My guest today is Dr. Ian McGilchrist, a psychiatrist, professor of literature, and author of The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain, and The Making of the Western World. I first had a chance to meet Ian a year ago when he visited AEI along with his good friend John Cleese of Monty Python fame, where he engaged with us in a conversation about his book. Through the miracle of modern telecommunications technology, I'm glad to welcome him back to AEI today all the way from the Isle of Skye on the west coast of Scotland. Ian, welcome to Hardly Working. Well, thank you very much. Wonderful to talk with you again. First, I just wanted to have you provide listeners with kind of an overview of The Master and His Emissary and its major themes, and explain to us why anyone would spend 20 years of their life writing a single book.
1: (laughs) Yes, it wasn't something I had planned to do at the outset. But like Topsy, it just growed. It probably has something to do with my rather strange background. I went to Oxford to study theology and philosophy, ended up studying English literature, then got a fellowship that entitled me to do exactly what I wanted for seven years. So I went back to philosophy and psychology and then realized that to take what of my Where my interests were leading further, I'd need to train in medicine and become a doctor and specialize in the area between sort of neurology and psychiatry. And that's the way it's gone. And in the book, what I do is, I think I've seen certain patterns, and they were very exciting when I found them in neurology, but they'd already begun to interest me in culture and in many of its manifestations, including those in the academic world where I was operating. And they had to do with the triumph of abstraction, generalization, explicitness, decontextualization over all that really matters to us, which is very hard to articulate or make explicit without betraying it, which is unique. Experience is always unique. It's just a useful fantasy we have that things can be generalized and put into boxes. And you know, that somehow our culture was losing a very great deal in this drive towards the general, the abstract, and and the explicit. It's absolutely everywhere we we look in the bureaucratization of life, the way in which we now think of people in terms of categories, we think of them as like machines, they have to fit in with machines they have to begin to think a bit like machines, and machines can't do implicit, they can't do unique and they can't do embodied they don't have bodies and it's these three losses, the loss of embodiment, the loss of the unique and the loss of the implicit that seems to me very important. In the world of business, one sees this all the time. Things are supposed to be follow algorithms, they're supposed to be following flow diagrams. Everything should be made as explicit as possible so that it can be controlled. In fact, the problem with this is that when you control it, you don't really understand what it is you're doing and you end up messing up something that could have grown into something rather special. This struck me very much at the time. I was working at Johns Hopkins in neuroimaging. I was looking at the brains of people with schizophrenia. But while I was there, I had my first taste of America what i noticed was extraordinary explicitness. I kept trying to make my meaning clear in a more implicit way through tone of voice, through sense of humor, through metaphor, and it just didn't work. I just needed to state, right as though I were programming a machine, what it was I wanted or what it was I meant, which was not the normal way I'd grown up to, to operate.
0: Churchill said that the Americans and the English are two people separated by a common language.
1: It's not just the point about Americans, though, because I was noticing things happening in Britain that were happening in the same way, and some of it may be to do with the breakdown of a common culture in Europe, which in a way was always an artificial creation in America because you're a melting pot. And so the common ways of thinking and understanding one another in shorthand no longer operate because you're dealing across different cultures all the time, and that kind of makes Everything have to become suddenly very clunky and explicit. But anyway, I noticed that, you know, in the past studying literature, we were looking at poems written in the past by people who thought they were leaving something special and full of meaning. And it was entirely embodied. As soon as you paraphrased it or took the meaning out of the context, it was destroyed. As soon as you made explicit the meaning, it was destroyed. It was something that worked on you not just in the cerebral way but in, a, in an emotional, physical way as well. I mean literally it can affect your blood pressure, your pulse rate, your breathing, your, you know, the tension in the muscles of your body and so on. And the other thing was, you know, it was completely unique. So great works of art are just unique. If they hadn't been made, you wouldn't have been able to imagine them any more than you could imagine your best friend by putting them together out of, you know, generalities you can find in the dictionary. So when I got to the Morsley Hospital, I came, I came across the work of a colleague, John Cutting, who'd done something rather unusual, which was spend 20 years sitting at the bedside of people with strokes, tumors, and injuries to their right hemisphere. And that's unusual because most people are preoccupied with the left hemisphere, which in medical school I'd learnt was you know, very important because it did language and it did reason and all this kind of stuff. And mostly when people have right hemisphere strokes. Well, they can, they can talk, they can use their right hand, which, you know, is the most, the most important thing, and they get sent home, and that's it. But actually, it turns out it's much harder to rehabilitate people after a right hemisphere stroke than after a left, because what happens after a right hemisphere stroke is the whole world loses its meaning, which is pretty fundamental. And he had catalogued this amazing, with vivid examples this amazing panoply of ways in which the world ceases to hang together and have meaning for people who have damage to the right hemisphere. When they have damage to the left hemisphere, even though they may have problems with speaking and using their right hand and therefore writing, the world is effectively exactly the same place that it was. They can communicate the difficulty, but when they do, they're talking about the same world, they're experiencing the same world, they understand what other people mean, and so forth. But after the right hemisphere is damaged, it's as though you were in an alien realm. But three things he said really made me sit up. One was that the right hemisphere is more interested in unique cases left in simply putting things into pigeonholes and categories. That the right hemisphere is more in touch with the body, literally. It's more in touch with emotion, it's more in touch with the body image, it actually has more control over the autonomic nervous system which regulates much of what our body is doing when we're not aware of it than the left hemisphere. the other thing was that the right hemisphere understood implicit meaning. So it could get jokes. It could get sarcasm. It could understand reading a cartoon or a poem. It understood music. It could read faces. It could understand body language. It could understand the importance of what is not said as much as what is said. So I came to the point where I saw something very important here. I went and talked to John. And that led to 20 years of research on hemisphere differences. And I was told by all my colleagues, don't go there, don't get involved in this. This is all pop psychology. This has all been blown out of the water long ago. It's career death even to touch the topic. But I was fascinated. I was just too intrigued. I mean, first of all, there were three very basic questions here. Number one, why the hell is the brain divided at all? i.e., if you look at it on the slab, there's a massive great gulf right down the middle that is basically separating the two hemispheres. And then when you come to look at them, they have regularly different shapes and different measurable. Elements of different sizes and weights, they have different patterns on the surface, they have different cell architecture in places, they have different gray to white matter ratios, they respond differently to hormones, they respond differently to neurotransmitters, or they use neurotransmitters differently at any rate. This was all bizarre because these are very clear asymmetries that nobody could deny because you can actually measure them. And then the third thing that puzzled me was that the corpus callosum, which is a band of tissue at the base of the brain, neural tissue that connects the two, is the main thoroughfare of traffic between the two hemispheres, is largely inhibitory. Most of the neurons within a hemisphere are heavily interconnected with one another, but only about 2% of neurons actually cross this commissure called the, the corpus callosum at the base of the brain. And the ultimate effect of them is often to say, keep out of this, I'm dealing with it. So there was something about division here that was fascinating. I mean, obviously, they have to work together as well. We needed them to be unified at some level but they also needed to be separate and divided at some level. Why? And that's a philosophically fascinating point that was backed up by much hard neurology. And it seemed to be related to my concern about what was
0: happening to the way we were tending to think nowadays. If that's the sort of the scientific side of this, the two hemispheres are different, they're constructed differently, they have different functions, they, they have, I think you've said elsewhere, they have different kind of personalities. If we accept that as a premise, how do you see this working itself out over time, which is really what the second half of the book is about? Well, I mean, first of all, the the question is, why have we we got this
1: at all? It would make more sense, superficially speaking, for there not to be a division. And what was the division? Because it wasn't, the people who warned me about the pop psychology were right. You know, we used to say the left hemisphere is at least down to earth and reliable and linguistic and rational and the right hemisphere is a little bit given to having pink and fluffy ideas and this being rather emotional. This is not right. For example, the emotion that most clearly lateralizes is anger and it lateralizes to the left hemisphere. And to cut a very long story short, the left hemisphere is not down to earth and reasonable. It is actually, it sees very little, it jumps to conclusions and it's very dogmatic compared with the right hemisphere. The reason I think this all happened is because we need to look at the world in two different ways and that's crucial. It's not really about what the two hemispheres do. You see, people gave up on this question of what the difference is because they were asking the question you'd ask of a machine, what does each hemisphere do? And they got back the answer, they both seem to be involved in language, they both seem to be involved in reason, they both seem to be involved in emotion and visuospatial things and, and basically in everything. But they didn't ask the question that you ought to ask about part of a person, which is how do they do it? In what way do they do it? To what ends with what values do they do it? What are they like? And the answer is reliably completely different. And this has an evolutionary basis, which is that every animal and every creature that we've looked at, back to the most ancient creatures we know of, seems to be lateralized. So they're not symmetrical in their behavior or in their neural networks. And the reason seems to be a fundamental problem of paying attention to a detail, i.e. being able to latch on to something which you want to eat or pick up a twig to build a nest and at the same time keeping an open mind and an open attention to all the rest that's going on so that you see the predator coming, you see your conspecifics, your family around you that need to be fed. You take in the big picture and the penny almost... You know, didn't drop when I first heard that. I thought, well, okay, attention, yeah, it's another of those cognitive functions, but it's not just another cognitive function. It's the basis for our understanding of the world. How you attend to the world changes how the world looks to you and what you find there, in fact. So, if that's right, each hemisphere should see a rather different kind of a world. And it's that that is the key thing to remember one in the left hemisphere, the one that pays minute attention to a detail that's isolated from the rest of the context, sees a world that's built up from such little details. It thinks the world is like a wall built out of bricks. You take a few bricks, you know what they are, you put them together, you get the whole wall. But really, The world is not like that at all. It's far, far more complex and things are interrelated and affect one another. They stop being the same thing as soon as they get into company with other things. So the left hemisphere sees this world full of little static bits that can be put together in an orderly fashion to build something it thinks it understands, which is easy to map, easy to predict. The right hemisphere sees that the world is A seamless web, effectively, in which it's useful to isolate a few things from time to time in order to manipulate them. But actually, that's a fiction. They're really connected. They're all connected. They're never static. They're always moving and changing. There's something which affects us, that we're not separate from what it is we see. The left hemisphere sees it as, as it we're on a screen, something remote, which it can manipulate. Whereas the right hemisphere realizes it's already embedded in the world it's looking at. So these are two very, very different pictures of the world. And I thought that what had happened was that we'd begun in the world we're in now in the West to privilege one way of seeing the world, the one that is reductionist, mechanical, decontextualized, and arid spiritually, not really alive at all. Over a world that is living full of meaning, full of vibrancy, is the real world. And in other words, we are mistaking a map or a construct or a screen projection for the real world that is living and complex in three dimensions out there. And I thought to myself, and this is where you, you asked me about the second half of the book, well, maybe there were other times when it was different. And I started to look back at different periods of Western history. And I thought that I could see various shifts, if you like, swings of the pendulum over history. And in the second half of the book, I try to, it's a very ambitious thing to do, but I try to look at our history from the Greeks to the Romans the Renaissance and the Reformation, the Enlightenment, Romanticism, and Modernism and Postmodernism. And what I think I can see is that three times over in our history, we've repeated a certain pattern that we start off, say, in the 6th century BC in Athens, then again around the year dot in in Rome, and then perhaps again in the 14th, 15th century in, in Europe, with a marvelous Working together these two ways of looking at the world, which means that the arts and the sciences flourish together because both the arts and the sciences need both of these ways of thinking. One isn't science and the other one the arts. For good creative life, you need both these ways of thinking at different stages of whatever you're doing. And yet in every case of these three civilizations it seemed to me that over time, although there were adjustments and swings of the pendulum for short periods, eventually we ended up too far in the world of the left hemisphere, a steeply hierarchical, categorized, static, monolithic, over controlled way of looking at the world, after which
0: the civilization fossilized and collapsed. So that's the downside is the fossilization and collapse that can, and in your reading has occurred in the past as a sort of over dominance of the the left hemisphere's way of understanding the world takes over. So let's talk about the other side of the ledger. What has left hemisphere dominance brought us or bought us? What's the upside?
1: So in the very short run, the left hemisphere has an obvious advantage. It First of all, its way of thinking is incredibly simple, in fact, simplistic. It sees a mechanism that it thinks it knows how to manipulate, and it doesn't see the problems that are coming down the path, because it's only seeing a little bit of the picture, both in time and in space. And we, unfortunately, are suckers for power. It's what all the famous myths told us would be our undoing, and it's what is actually undoing us now no society seems able to resist the lure of more power and the left hemisphere controls the right hand which for most of us is the one with which we grab and grasp things it's the one that controls not all of language but the bit whereby we say oh i've i've grasped it pinned it down it's gone into one of my pigeonholes i feel happy now this is not a very intelligent way to look at the world, but it's effective in the short run. And what I think happened, to cut a long story short, in the Greek, the Roman, and our case, is that we overstretched ourselves. The Greeks and the Romans created, the Greeks had colonies that were very dispersed. The Romans had a huge empire, and the British and Americans between them have developed First, an administrative empire in the case of the Brits and an economic empire in the case of America, which means that everything has to be universalized, rolled out, simplified, generalized, made thoroughly rule bound, explicit, and predictable. And unfortunately, that doesn't correspond to reality. So it makes you feel good in the short run because it just gets you stuff. But I think even the Least gifted of us now <laughs> can see that, you know, just getting another smartphone or, a, you know, an Alexa or something is no compensation for having divorced ourselves from nature, from having entered a world where we search and know what meaning is. It's become devitalized, despiritualized, mechanized, and sterile. And this is a very, very high price to pay. And what concerns me particularly and concerns many younger people, I'm glad to say, is the vast incalculable destruction of nature that's going on all over the world. Not necessarily, of course, In I'm not pointing the finger at America, but all over the world at an enormous rate in China and India where, of course, we export a lot of our dirty work. But nonetheless, it is catastrophic. And the destruction of species and the destruction of old ways of, of being. You know, older cultures, perhaps more modest, humble cultures that lived perfectly satisfactory existences for thousands of years. And yet, in 200 years, and that's all it is really since the Industrial Revolution, two and a half centuries perhaps, we have managed to pretty much wreck the world. So, first prize for the left hemisphere.
0: Mm. So continuing on this theme you did a paper for us and we'll post your paper to the show notes on this conversation but in that paper you talked about you described the left hemisphere as being Rumsfeldian that it doesn't know what it doesn't know and I'd like you to explain that in a little bit more depth
1: I didn't I hope call it Rumsfeldian but I said that in a Rumsfeldian moment in other words Rumsfeld seems to me wrongly pilloried for having said one of the most intelligent things in modern politics, which is it's the unknown unknowns that really get you. <laughs> you may have said a lot of unintelligent things, but that was the one intelligent thing he definitely did say. and <laughs> It's quite wrong that he should be pilloried for it because this is the basic problem. The left hemisphere knows a certain amount, but because it knows little, it doesn't really know the extent of what it doesn't know. We really don't know the extent of the realm of our ignorance. William James said, our ignorance is a sea, our knowledge is a drop. And probably you and your listeners will know about what's called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which effectively can be summed up as people who are intelligent think they don't know that much because they see the extent of their ignorance. People who are not functioning well and are not very bright think they know it all. And that's really the situation we're in with the left hemisphere. It is the emissary in the title of my book, The Master being in the right hemisphere. And put very briefly the story is that the, the right hemisphere has a certain wisdom. I, I call it a spiritual master that is looking after a community, and this master knows that not only can he not deal with all the business, but he must not get embedded and bogged down in certain details of administration. If he's going to be able to keep that oversight, which is the important thing for the thriving the future continuation of the community. And so he appoints a deputy, his brightest and best, to go about doing his business. And this emissary is bright enough, but not bright enough to know what it is he doesn't know. So he soon thinks, he I know everything. The master doesn't know anything and pretends to be the master. And it's a bit like the story of the Sorcerer's Apprentice. He doesn't know what it is he doesn't know. And as a result, things fall apart and the community falls into ruins. So I think this is the danger that we have now, and the trouble is the less you see, the less you know what it is you're missing. And it's possible to grow up in the world nowadays. This worries me a lot, actually. Never having known as ancient things like me, at any rate, I wouldn't say really you, Brent, but you know, we've knocked around a bit. We've seen that the world can be otherwise. We've had a view of other things that have been largely driven out. And it's possible that you wouldn't know, that you wouldn't even see that there's something wrong (laughs) with the way things are. However, I do believe people have very good intuitions. And one thing that makes me hopeful is that when I go and talk at places, I get an audience of all ages. It's not just the oldies, but it's also a lot of young people who come up to me and say, this is absolutely fascinating and rings lots of bells
0: you know what, it's what it's interesting do? because we we've had iPhones and sort of digital technology brought more broadly speaking really it's only been with us for 10 to 15 years and of course you and I and many other people listening to this will remember the world before then and it was a much slower world it wasn't slow but it wasn't the world we know today in which everything is set on such a high speed And I do feel badly for people who don't have that memory, just as I'm sure my parents and your parents had, you know, regrets about us not having some of the experiences they had when they were growing up. But it does seem like this is a hyper acceleration of life that we're experiencing as a result of digital technology. One of my favorite examples of this is Twitter, which, uh, you know, 140, then it became 280 characters. but these short bursts of, I won't even call them thoughts, just kind of fragments of thoughts that are flying around us all the time that are driving so much of our public life. And I was wondering if you had any reflections yeah. on that.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot and a lot to say about that. There are all sorts of things going on. I mean, I call it antisocial media because it is actually quite disruptive. It takes people away from the presence of other people they're with while they're examining their phones, as we've all seen in restaurants and public spaces, even in places of great beauty where they're not looking at the landscape, but at the phone. It has a subtle competition, element of competition, or not even that subtle, a rather obvious element of competition in it, you know having likes and followers and friends. So you can end up with a thousand friends on Facebook and none in real life because you don't have time actually to meet any of them. It's anxiety provoking. It's trivializing because as you say, everything's got to be reduced to a soundbite and nothing important or interesting in this world can be. All the important things I know require long, deep, sustained attention, which is only possible in a quiet and slow pace of life, not in a frantic, overstimulated world. It's very distracting and it breaks up therefore the sense of continuity. The world seems fragmented because effectively we're relaying it as fragmented. I think there are a lot of problems that result from that. When we're dealing with machines or even with public bodies, we find ourselves faced with sort of people who are reading from a script on which there is an algorithm where whatever you say, there's a sort of thing they then say back to you. And you, you are forced in interacting with them and with machines to become more like a machine in order to get through the algorithm. I mean, sometimes in negotiating a website, you have to, and there are plenty of times when it asks you a question which to which there's no sensible, intelligent answer, because it's far too circumscribed in the way it's put to you. I want to say, well, with whom, on what day, under what circumstances, where, you know, and so on. But you just have to say yes or no. So you just lie,
0: you know, just to get through. I usually so, do that with my birthday.
1: On a much, much more serious level, it has effects on children growing up and on society at large. I was speaking in Toronto seven or eight years ago, and afterwards, somebody came up to the microphone and said, look, I I teach five to seven-year-olds, and my colleagues and I have just noticed in the last couple of years that we actually have to start teaching children how to read a human face. Now, you know, that shocked me because I knew that, you know, a sure sign of autism was that you actually have to teach people how to read a human face and that generally speaking, you wouldn't
0: have to teach. So that's really, I mean, that's pick- really an interesting point, I think. I mean, it's it's just struck me recently that are we creating these machines or are they creating us? And I have a son with autism. I know what autism means. And his world looks a lot like what you're describing as a left hemisphere world. You know, that it's he has tremendous difficulty dealing with ambiguity, with uncertainty, with anything that isn't regimented, broken down, and predictable, he finds overwhelming. And it sounds like what these teachers relate to, it's almost like the technology is imposing itself into the brains of young children. Its view of under, so would, its view of the world, the technology's view of the world begins to take over.
1: Yeah. That sounds a bit alarmist, but there's a grain of truth in it in the sense that our brains are on, constantly being molded by the environment at the same time that our environment is being molded by our brains. So there is a feedback loop. And there are other things that are happening to people as well. And another thing people have written to me about, teachers have written to me about, is that they now find that quite a high proportion of their class can't do a certain test, which for most of the 30 years they've been teaching, practically every one of the children was able to do. What are those tests? In every case, they depend on sustained attention, which is how you read a novel, how you read philosophy, how you stop and think about deep meaning, is not encouraged by the high-speed, over-stimulated, fragmented way in which we now lead our lives. I think what happens is that when there are these tendencies anyway in certain individuals, they're accentuated by an environment such as our own.
0: I wanna to try to bring this back to, you know, sort of my principal area of interest in research, which is around workforce development.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Because we see, you know, an employer survey after employer survey, what's really missing in the workforce, you know, and employers tell us over and over and over again, what we really need are people who can communicate, people who have empathy, people who can work in teams, people who can manage other people. And one of the things that I so appreciate about your work is that it's helped me to understand that better. And I'm just curious whether you have thought about that. In a high-tech economy, society, we need people who understand technology, but is our technology then making it harder and harder for us to sustain our economy? Of course, we need people who understand how to work with
1: others who understand human meaning because effectively that's the bit that machines can't do. They may be able to calculate fast, sure, but they don't actually have any i mean they don't have any intelligence let 's get that straight the, the phrase "artificial intelligence is is a huge misnomer it's kind of artificial stupidity, which is it can be trained up and trained up to the next level to look more, but really, it is always following rules and what that emphasises is procedure and control over imagination. What the people who are saying, well, we don't have this element in our workforce are also noticing is there isn't the creativity. There isn't the imagination that there used to be. And this is partly because of the need for over control in organisations to make sure that there aren't basic errors. And this actually ensures not that there won't be errors because there always will be, but that there will never be excellence because excellence requires freedom to make mistakes, freedom to take a long time and produce nothing, and then suddenly have a moment. If you over-specify the process and over-specify the standards and the way and the time in which it will be done, all you will end up is thoroughgoing mediocrity and repetition of the same mistakes that have led us to the place where we are now. We need a complete change of heart and mind, and we need it not just there, but we need it in society. I mean, the social media wars are noted for their ability to put people into boxes and categories, left, right, outright, black white, whatever, male, female, transgender, 32 different categories, but actually not looking very much at people, not really interested in nuance, not interested in the ramifications and the subtlety of what all these things might mean. Everything has become either or, and it's, the debate is conducted with the left hemisphere's principal emotional timbre, which is one of aggression and anger, which is upsetting. In what I'm writing at the moment I've been looking at, I'm writing another huge <laughs> bloody book, which I really hope to be finished very soon, but amongst many things in it, what I aim to show is that it's not just that the right hemisphere would be nice in the, in the workplace, it would be nice to have people that are nice to one another and you know get on together. The main thing about the right hemisphere is that not only is it far better at all of that because it's a matter of understanding apart from anything else, it's actually just more intelligent. It is actually literally more important for cognitive intelligence, good old-fashioned IQ. So if you look at, and this has been done in the study, if you look at damage in the brain that's happened due to a stroke and a subsequent drop in IQ, where there has been a marked drop in IQ, is practically always follows on damage to the right hemisphere, not the left. So, you know, get that. And then it's much, much better at understanding emotional intelligence and social intelligence. It's more perceptive in all the faculties of perception that we have. The right hemisphere is more perceptive, picks up more. Its attention is much broader. It is the one that sees the picture here. It's the one that actually we should be paying attention to. Its judgments are much more nuanced, much more complex. The left hemisphere tends to go, quick, I want an answer now. And it makes quick and dirty judgments. It makes those sort of snap judgments that are just the ones we shouldn't have made. So I just wanted to say that because I don't want anyone to go away and think that I'm saying peddling the old idea. Let me emphasize, it is not that the right hemisphere is, you know, emotional but kind of nice. The left hemisphere is bright and tough. The left hemisphere thinks it knows everything. It doesn't. It's not very bright and it's
0: leading us where we shouldn't be going. Well, that certainly sounds like Twitter to me. Ian, thank you so, (laughs) so much for your time today we could go on and on and on on this topic as far as I'm concerned. And I really appreciate your taking some time out of your schedule because I know that you haven't quite spent 20 years on this book that you're working on, but it's a very absorbing and demanding task that you set before yourself with this next volume, which I am anxious to read. And I hope that when it's done, you'll come back and tell us about that book too. thank you very much
1: Brent yeah and all the best for the series
0: okay thanks so much Ian bye then bye bye